Hallelujah. Blessed Father, thank you for feeding us once again with faith. Thank you for filling us once again with your spirit. Thank you for strengthening us once again in the salvation that comes from you, from your son, our savior, Jesus. And as we turn to your word today and the time of teaching, we pray that you would enrich what we have received, Lord, that you would enrich it, not in the sense of enhancing those elements because there's nothing finer or better than the bread of heaven that is the body of Christ, nothing more sacred or pure than the blood of Jesus, but rather enrich us through what we have received. And by that, I mean to pray, Lord, my brothers and sisters and I, that you would enhance our awareness of you, that you would increase our sensitivity to you, that you would release us from places of diversion, delusion, deception, or anything destructive that we may have given place to or that may have entered into our lives in this recent week. And we pray that you would refresh and renew us, cleanse us, equip us. Yes, enlighten us, Lord. We desire to be your people, a people patient to praise you and ready to receive you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. It happened in the middle of the night. It happened in the dark, in the cold, in the quiet. An hour disappeared like that. And an hour later it returned. When the clocks hit 2 a.m. this morning, 2 a.m. disappeared and 1 a.m. returned. And an hour later, when 3 a.m. was due to arrive, 2 a.m. was back again. It's a little game we play in our world called Daylight Saving Time. And it came to its conclusion this morning, which really felt like last night, because most of us hopefully were in bed, asleep and a snooze when the clock played its trick. Or if the clock didn't play its trick automatically for you, then that may have been the trick that you woke up to. Twice a year, we change the dial on our clocks, if anyone uses a dial anymore. And it happens in the middle of the night. It happens at a time of quiet, a time of darkness. But it happens, and it changes for as many as are engaged in it, at least, for our purposes, for our lives, it changes the world. And certainly it does affect the whole world. Because even if there's somewhere like Arizona where they don't observe daylight saving time, which is just fine, no judgment there. And I think many of us might appreciate that. But in any case, they have to be aware that California does, right? When you're doing business across state lines, it's good to know what time it is. It's good to know what time it is. It's good to be ready. And while it's good to get our rest, sometimes the season calls for us to stay awake, to stay alert. Because if we're not there to turn the hand of that dial, then it may not change, but the time has still come. And it's we who will be left behind and out of step and out of order and out of time. 
And Jesus, when he teaches in his parables, frequently teaches about how to recognize the signs of the times. He talks about them like signs of the seasons, like leaves and fruit on the fig trees or seeds that grow in the garden or in the harvest. And in one particular parable, he talks about something that happens in the middle of the night. Indeed, there are, in fact, several of those that he does give. In fact, we've talked about some of those. The thief that comes in the middle of the night to sow weeds among the wheat, tares among the seeds of wheat. We talked about the thief who comes and breaks into the house, and if the owner had known that the thief was coming in the middle of the night, the owner would have been prepared. But because the owner wasn't aware, he was robbed blind. These are other parables that we've already looked at in this season, this series on Jesus's ministry of parables. For anybody who's new to the series or maybe new to the concept of parables, which is probably not many people, but it's always worthy to review. These are typically short little pithy stories that are intended primarily to convey a spiritual or moral message and they formed a cornerstone of Jesus' earthly teaching. About a third of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels is composed of parables. And their vibrant imagery and their innate drama often makes them some of the most memorable lessons that Jesus shared. They are often also particularly focused, as I said, on this virtue of patience and how it can be applied in the development of our character and the enriching of our faith. In fact, just by teaching in parables, Jesus is teaching us patience because parables call us to lean in, to look into ourselves for the lesson that we are finding in the story and to apply it in the nature of our daily living. Today, we're going to look at the next to last of the parables in this series. As I mentioned, next week we have a guest speaker. Uh, I will just add here that uh, I covet prayers for my wife and I, Pastor Hazel and I, will be taking uh, some time off at the end of this week into next week and, uh, and taking a, an, um, a much-needed vacation. I think we could say that. Both of us really looking forward to this as we celebrate a little belatedly our 21st wedding anniversary. So we appreciate your prayers for us uh, as we will be away next weekend. And uh, we will be praying for you. And they know you're going to be blessed by Pastor Maureen Broderson, who is a frequent friend of our congregation and always an inspired and very uh, biblically rooted teacher, preacher, and author. She's going to have some of her books with her. And uh, she was so gracious and kind. She said, is it, is it okay for me to bring books? I don't need to do that. I said, no, you need to. We want you to. We want you to make your books available. Of course, it's up to you whether you want to purchase or not, but Maureen's a wonderful writer. She's a wonderful teacher, and you're going to be blessed by her message. So that'll be a little bit of a pause in this sermon series as she talks about remembering the Lord, but it's a, it's a, a timely word in due season. And then two weeks from today, by God's grace, my plan is to conclude this sermon series with the last of the parables that we'll be looking at, one of the most famous, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But today, we are looking at the parable of, as you'll see on your bulletin, I've titled it, The Ten Ladies and Their Lamps. You're probably more familiar with this parable as the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Let me say that in the ancient culture that Jesus was speaking to and was part of and teaching to, when he indicated uh, that these were ten virgins, 
The point is not uh, particularly relevant to, to the parable in terms of their sexual relationships. These are unmarried women. That's the point that he's making. And unmarried women would be virgins. They would be virgins in that culture. And we would pray that they would be virgins in this culture. But we live in a different kind of culture. But the Lord is the same. And the virtue of the chastity of marriage and the sanctity of that relationship is an absolutely vital point of conversation. But it isn't our subject for today. So I'm not going to take it on as a subject. I just want to let you know, don't be confused or distracted by the reference to the virgins. There's nothing wrong with it. But this isn't a story about uh, sexual purity or sexual relationships. It isn't even particularly a story um, directly about marriage, although maybe it is. There's a little caveat I want to give myself there, and I'll come back to it. But the point is, like all of the parables, this story is one in which Jesus is using the familiar aspects of daily living to talk about a spiritual reality. In that culture, it was common that when two people were going to get married, the woman, even as we know from marriages in our society today, would have her wedding party, her bridesmaids, and the groom would have groomsmen as well. But in their culture, it was often a days-long party. Now, there may be people in the room who had days and days of wedding feasts and partying, and that's fine if you did, and you know, more power to you. But for the most part, these days, when people get married, it's pretty much constrained in terms of the party and the ceremony to a single day, maybe a weekend. But in the ancient times and in the, in the Near Eastern world, it was common for these kinds of events to go on for days upon days, maybe a week, 10 days, even two weeks. And so it was an extended celebration. And often people would be traveling very far extended family members in order to get to the place where the wedding was occurring. In this story that Jesus tells, the bridegroom actually has to travel some distance and the bridesmaids are waiting for him. Now a feature of this uh, ceremonial practice of the time was that the bridesmaids, that is the young unmarried women who were friends of this bride, were um, the recipients of or the uh, the, the, the hostesses of the arrival of the bridegroom. It was part of their service, part of the way that they honored the couple and the families and honored the, the institution of marriage was to be ready for the arrival of the bridegroom and to celebrate his arrival into the marriage feast in which everybody could participate. Everybody could have a piece of bread and a cup of wine to celebrate the union of these two people. So the bridesmaids, or the virgins, these ten ladies as I call them, a bit anachronistically, uh, but the emphasis is on these ten women of the bridal party whose job it was, their service it was, to be ready for the arrival of the bridegroom and to bring him with honor into the feast where he and his bride would be united and where everyone would celebrate it. That's the focus of this story. Now, Typically, this is not something that the bridesmaids would have to be waiting into the night or overnight for. But in the story that Jesus tells, that's what happens. The bridegroom is delayed. He doesn't describe why, but that's the fact of the matter. And in this delay, I don't think that's a word, delayment? <laughs> in this waiting, the bridesmaids have to be ready to wait in the dark. 
Will you turn to somebody next to you and say, be ready to wait in the dark. Now, what do you need if you're going to have to wait in the dark? And what I mean by wait in the dark is they're going to have to wait into the night. He hasn't arrived by the time that the sun is setting and the light is leaving. So what do you need? You need lamps. Now, you and I, we think about this in terms of electrical light or maybe electrical lanterns, or maybe we even just think about it in terms of our phones, and you need a battery. My cell phone is such that now it's just, it's on its last legs. I plug it in constantly and it just sort of sits there, you know, sucking in a little bit of juice at a time. I don't know. There's really a bite out of that apple now. And it's just kind of going. And that's the way that some of the ladies in this lesson are going to be. They've got a little bit of oil in their lamps. Because in the ancient world, the lanterns that they would have would be clay pots. And in these clay pots, there would be a reservoir of oil. And that oil would be used to burn. So there'd be a wick, probably made from a reed or some plant material. And that wick would have to be constantly tended. If you've ever had a lantern like this, you know that as the wick burns, you have to watch its length, you have to watch its depth into the oil, you have to keep the wick trimmed and pro properly prepared so that the light doesn't go out because then you've got to spark it again and of course they don't just have a, 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 a lighter in their pocket. And the other thing is so that it doesn't uh, uh, sputter and uh, smoke and so forth or catch anything else on fire. So it requires attention. And, and tending, stewardship. But the other thing is, if you run out of oil, you run out of light. You've got to have enough oil to keep burning. And so in the story, there's a disparity between how much oil each of these ladies has in their lamps for how long they're going to wait. My kids are not going to like that I'm using them as an example, but I was having this conversation with Hazel this week where I said, you know, the weather gets colder, and they, do, they go out dressed for warm weather still because they always say, oh, we're going, I'm going to be inside. I go from the car to the, to the gym, or I go from the car to the restaurant, it's fine. But, you know, there's something to be said for being prepared because you just never know when the gym might be closed when you get there, or the car might break down, and all of a sudden you're in the dark, you're in the light, in the night, you're in the cold, and you're not really adequately prepared. In the back of my car, I always keep a blanket in my trunk and a, and a box of tools and a variety of things that I think I might need. You know what's funny is, if I've ever had a problem, a breakdown or something like that, it always seems to me that when I go and look in the trunk, I think, that's the one thing that I need now that I don't have. And along the way, through the years, I've developed thoughts like, oh, have that rope in there. Have a, have a roadside uh, flashlight in there or a caution sign. Or, you know, pretty soon my trunk is weighed down with junk. Make of that what you will. But I like to be prepared because you never know how long you might have to wait if things don't go the way that you expect. And that is part of this story. Now, I've, I've got to uh, tell you something. Speaking of things not going the way that you expect, I had an issue with my slides today, and I told the guys in the booth, I said, something's not translating here. Um, I've been having a little bit of issue with this, and you might have noticed, and my apologies for it. Sometimes when I prepare slides on my laptop, which is a Mac, and then I bring them into the church here, 
they translate perfectly and easily. And sometimes they get really funky. But it used to be that I could look at what was on my desktop and I'd have a good idea of what shows up here in the sanctuary. But sometimes certain ones, I don't know, something gets in there. Some, I don't know, maybe there's a little bug in the code or maybe I just don't understand how I'm formatting them well enough. But something gets really funky. And so I had a problem with uh, these slides even this morning. So what I've done is I have uh, opted to, I don't have the actual Bible text to display for you, but I'm going to read it to you. It's just 13 verses. So I'd like to read the parable of these 10 ladies together. It's a simple enough story, and you'll pretty immediately get the lesson of it. But before I do, I want to tell you a little parable of my own. I mentioned that I like to be prepared. I mentioned that uh, my experiences of being unprepared in the past have taught me a little something about that. I remember when I was in college, and I don't, I don't actually remember how old I was, but I was probably 18 or 19, something like that. So I'd only been driving for a few years, but I had been driving for a few years. So you would think that I would know better than this. You would think that I would keep a cautious eye on the gas tank to watch where that needle is. But I don't know, there's something brazen and bold about a young man that thinks, I wonder how E, E really is. How empty is E? Because I remember that I used to be afraid when I first started driving, if it even began to hover above the letter E, I would think, oh, put gas in. But of course, not only did I not have a lot of gas, but I didn't have a lot of the thing that you use to buy the gas, which is money. So I used to go to the gas tank and do 250, you know, $2.50, that's what I could dig out of my... Now, these were in the days where that actually was some amount of gas. You can't even get a gallon for that anymore. <laughs> but back then, it was something. It would get me to school or back. I see people looking at me with scorn. I, I feel it, I know. But listen, I just was trying to keep it above that E. But I discovered something as I drove. It could touch the E, and I could still go a little further. I don't recommend this, but I discovered that. And then I would forget you know, I'd see it on top of the D and I think, oh, I'm going to fill it up. And then, you know, life gets busy and you go to class and then you get home and you think, oh, I'm so tired. And you go to sleep and then you get up the next morning. And of course, you're like, I got to get to class. And then you see, oh, it's on E. But then you think, maybe it can get to the middle of E. Like it could get to that middle line, right? And then you see that it gets to the middle line. And you think, well, it's probably made to go to the bottom line because after all, it's the bottom of the tank should be the bottom line of E, right? And then one day you forget and you see that it's below E and you're still driving. You're like, I can drive forever. Why did I ever fill this thing up? It just keeps going. I had this fantastic faith in fumes. You know, people would say to me, you're just driving on fumes. And I think, yeah, but look at how far the fumes can take me. You know, miles per gallon. I wonder what miles per fume is. Well, I found out one day, and it wasn't out of some bold attempt to test it, I forgot. It was one of those times I'm describing where actually it went this way. I got home from class late one night, thought, I don't want to get gas tonight, I'll do it tomorrow morning. Got up the next morning, forgot about it, went to class, got there and thought, oh, my gosh, I really need to get gas before I go home. But after the two and a half hour class or four hours of class, or I don't remember how long I was there, I forgot. I got back in the car and drove all the way home. And when I got home, I looked at it and thought, I can't believe I got all the way here. And the wise person would have said, I'm going to go get gas right now, because I actually lived uphill from a gas station. 
I know that you could let the car coast down that hill to the gas station because I had done that. So I knew that was possible. And I didn't even have to do that at that point. I should have just gone. But maybe I thought this will be a good story someday from the pulpit. I didn't. And then the next morning, I forgot. I know that this is so lame, but I did. And so I was driving, and on the freeway, all of a sudden, my car just stops going. I thought, oh my gosh, there's a problem with the engine. The gas pedal isn't working. What's going on? And then, dun, dun, da, you know, it's like suddenly that E is huge in front of me. <laughs> you never filled up the tank. And I was like, what an idiot am I that I allowed myself to do this? I'm telling you this story, so, you know, give me a, a little grace here because I'm showing myself to be such a fool in front of you. So here on the freeway, the only off-ramp was uphill. And I was probably half a mile from that off-ramp. Oh, Jesus, please help me. Please help me. Just get me up. Just, just, if I could just get up that off-ramp, then there was a bridge, but it was a short little bridge, and downhill. Oh, what a blessed thought. Downhill from that bridge, there was a gas station. And so if you've ever seen the end of, uh, of The Graduate, that film with uh, Dustin Hoffman, you know at the end of the movie, his car running out of gas. I always think of that when I tell this story. It was like, da-dum. And here I'm coming up. And of course, this off-ramp, not only was it uphill, but there was a traffic light at the top. And so it was green. And I was like, please, Lord, please, please, let me get through it. Let me get through it. And then the light turned red. And I had to stop there. So I turned the car off. And I didn't really know, is that a good idea or not? Should I let it idle? Is it going to be harder to start or stop? But I was so afraid that the fumes were failing me that I thought I better conserve whatever fumes are there. And so when the light turned green, I turned the car back on. And of course, it could barely turn over. I got a little sputter out of it. And then I just rolled on that sputter to the top of the bridge, about like this. And of course, everybody behind me, go, go, go. And I'm like, I'm going as fast as I can. I'm just rolling uphill on the impulse of that last gasp of gas. And then there I was, stuck, stranded on the bridge. And I was not at the point where it was downhill yet because I actually realized, I'd never realized this before. I'd driven over that bridge so many times. But it's different when you walk a bridge than when you drive over it. Because you think, oh, that bridge is level. Guess what? It's not. And I was still on the downhill side of it. I was still looking uphill. And I tried to get out and push the car, and I didn't have the strength to do that. And nobody looked fondly at me in that moment. Everybody that had been behind me said choice words and made choice signs as they sped right past me. And I got into my car, and I thought, I'm so close. I'm so close, but I'm so far. And I've got class, and I'm going to miss class, and I'm going to have to find a phone. And call my parents and say, I ran out of gas. And that whole conversation was going to be really fun. And then a voice spoke out of the heavens. Put your car into neutral, and I will push you. <laughs> Jesus, you're here. 
put your car into neutral and I will push you. And I looked in the rear view mirror and I've never been so happy to see a CHP before. I was so happy. I thought, oh, I'm probably going to get a ticket, but at least I'm going to get help. And he, sure enough, I found out, well, that's one of the things they have those bumpers on the front for. He just came up gently behind me in his, in his cruiser and boom, I felt that. And then he pushed me up and over and down and into the gas station. Hallelujah, such a great feeling. A not as great feeling was him walking up to the window. What happened? <laughs> What's going on? And I said, I'm out of gas. And he said, why? And I said, I forgot to fill it up, you know. And he was like, don't do that. That's really dangerous. And you were in a really dangerous spot. And he gave me a well-deserved lecture. He was kind. He wasn't rude about it. But he was stern. It was rather fatherly. I needed it. And I said, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And he was like, it's okay. Don't make me do it again. And I thought at that point, Never run out of gas again. And I must say, that was not the first time I had run out of gas. It's not even the first time I had run out of gas on the freeway, I know. But it was the last time. I have never run out of gas again. And it was also such a blessing that in my moment of need, someone was there to push me into the station. And he didn't give me a ticket. He just gave me a talking to. But he gave me a lesson, and the lesson is don't run out of gas. Don't run out of fuel. Don't push it. Don't push yourself to the place where you're running on fumes. Some of you are running on fumes today, and you're thinking, how far does the needle have to fall before E, below E, before I can't go any further? And the Lord would say to you and I, don't test that because you don't need to. Every resource that you need to roll with the Lord and to cruise in the things of Christ and to be empowered by the Spirit is available to you. And in a sense, it's available to you and I for free, except that there is a certain cost. You've got to take the time to receive it. You have to have the focus and the intent to receive it. Now, that's not to say that God can't grace you with an added measure of faith and fuel at his discretion. But the reality is that the Lord can come up to the window of our souls also and say, what's the matter with you? And if you and I say, I'm out of fuel, he can say, why? Why did you allow that to happen? Haven't I shown you how to resource yourself and me? Haven't I promised to give you what you need? And for somebody out there who might say, well, I don't know that the Lord has shown that, or I don't know that the Lord has said that, that's why you want to look to his word. The, this word is the gas station of your soul. It's the place where you can recharge your battery, where you need to reconnect. And even if you're like my phone and you're just sort of like, I'm just gonna sip up what little I can. Well, get plugged in today and at least get going in that renewing of your soul. Because there is a time coming where if you don't have the faith to fuel you, it's too late to find it anywhere else. 
And that's the story of Matthew 25. Let's look there together. If you have your scripture, you can look at it. If not, you can hear me tell the story and you'll be able to follow along. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, can be likened to 10 young ladies who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps, but they didn't take any additional oil with them. They only had the oil that their lamp could hold. And once that oil was burned out, they didn't have any additional reservoir of oil. And the foolish said to the wise young women, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But they said, no. There will not be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell the oil and buy for yourselves. Now the bridegroom had been, dis, uh, the bridegroom had been delayed. And these women that had the oil, the five wise ones, you shouldn't take the story as suggesting that Jesus is saying, when you have something, don't share it with others. And Jesus isn't saying, be selfish and cruel. Jesus is simply telling a story about a situation in which people were expected to come prepared, and half of them did, and half of them didn't. And in a situation like that, it is typical that people will say, if you're asking me for mine, then I won't have enough. So there's no point in me giving you my oil, then we'll all be running out. But instead, go and find a seller, and they will sell it to you and come back. So the point of the story is not to make a moral lesson about whether we should share or not. The point of the story is about whether we are prepared or not. So these five foolish bridesmaids went in the night to buy, but while they were gone, searching for a seller, then the bridegroom finally arrived. And when the bridegroom arrived, there was no measure for him to be waiting because after all, the entire festivity had already been awaiting his arrival. The bridesmaids were there in order to receive him and to bring him with honor into the wedding feast. So when he arrived, the five foolish went in with him because they were ready, but the door was shut behind them as they went into the feast. Afterward, the other virgins arrived back and they came to the Lord the master of the feast, and they said, open the door, open the door. But he said, no, assuredly I say to you, I don't know who you are. And his lack of knowing who they are relates also to the hour of the night. This was at the time when in the dark of night you didn't necessarily want to let just anybody in. And I suppose it's still a time like that. If somebody comes knocking on your door in the middle of the night, you may not be inclined to let them in. But again, the point of the story is not to focus on whether it was very kind or gracious of the host to act this way, but rather to make the point that it's well within the rights of the host, that he's entirely entitled to say, you didn't arrive on time, and so you're not allowed in because the time for entering the feast has passed. Watch, therefore, Jesus said, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Half of the young ladies prepared their lamps wisely because they didn't know 
how long they would be waiting. And they didn't know just when the bridegroom would come, but they did believe that he would arrive. And so they wanted to be ready to wait as long as they needed to, and certainly all through the night. But half of them didn't have that kind of confidence. The five wise women were intent in their desire to be ready when the bridegroom came so that they could enter into the feast. The five foolish women didn't have enough fuel because they didn't prepare properly, and so they missed the wedding feast. Patient expectation is patient readiness. Part of patience is being prepared. Will you turn to the person on the other side of you and say, part of patience is being prepared. God wants you and I to receive all of his blessings. He is sure to fulfill all of his good promises. But you and I need to believe what he has to say and be ready for when he arrives. So in the conclusion of today's message, I want to talk about some essential uh, lessons from each aspect of the story. The five foolish women, the five faithful women, and the one feast that they were all supposed to be able to enter into. When we see the five foolish bridesmaids, we need to recognize that their lack of resource is directly relatable to their lack of preparation. They didn't plan for how to wait. And they didn't realize that they had not enough. So how does this apply to you and I in terms of being ready for the arrival of the Lord? This is from Matthew chapter 25. And actually, we looked at this passage, this chapter, earlier in this sermon series. And we saw that it's one in which Jesus speaks repeatedly about how to be ready for the return of the Lord. I had a very tragic call earlier this week. A member of my extended family died unexpectedly and very shockingly. He was only 30 years old. And I was reminded when I got that call, that horrible feeling that really is not comparable to anything else when someone has died that you love and you didn't see it coming. And especially if it's early in life like this, it's a terrible, terrible, empty, horrific kind of feeling, as many of you sadly have experienced. But it's also a reminder. You never know what tomorrow holds. You never know when your time comes. And we can say it's not fair, and we can say people went too soon, or we can look at other people and say, well, the choices they made led to that, but I'll make better choices. But there's people who live the healthy life all their life and get a stroke and die in a moment, or people that contract cancer. You've heard the stories of people with lung cancer who've never smoked. It's not a suggestion that you should go out and smoke, but it is a reminder. You don't have to smoke to get lung cancer, sadly enough. You never know not only when you could run out of fuel on the freeway, but when someone might be driving the wrong way on a freeway. I remember reading a story about somebody that was driving on a freeway near us. I think it was the Antelope Valley Freeway, or it might have been the 210. But in any case, they were driving, and there was a large, oversized vehicle that had those huge tires, and one of them blew off. 
And when it did the hubcap, the hubcap came free and just went flying, you know, like a discus and went directly through that person's windshield. And that, that was sadly the end of their life. It was a young, young man, I think, in his 30s or something. Nobody likes to hear stories like these. It's horrible. It's also frightening because it reminds us of how insecure we are. But Jesus talked about times like these. He talked about people who were killed under the um, despotic leadership of an unrighteous ruler named Herod, who for whatever reason had put holy people who were exercising their faith in the temple, he had had them executed because he wasn't pleased with some political uh, point of theirs. And Jesus said about them, do you think that they were less righteous people? And yet they suffered that kind of death. And then he talked about some people in Jerusalem who were standing by a tower and that tower fell over. Apparently its foundation wasn't good or maybe there was an earthquake. Something caused the tower to fall over and it fell over on top of them. You may have heard the tragic story this week about people crushed to death in Korea. Many of us are sadly aware, and I hope that uh, any who have relatives or friends among this uh, number that you uh, sense our th sympathies and know our love and prayers for you, but I heard a number that over 150 people lost their lives in the Philippines this week because of typhoon. Do you think they're any less righteous than you? Do you think that they had any le less right to life than you or I do? No. And Jesus said, if it happened to them, it could happen to you. And you and I might think, well, that seems like small comfort. Actually, our comfort is in the Lord. Our comfort is to know that what Jesus says is, if you partake of me and I am in you, then even though you die, yet will you live. But what if you are not in Christ? And what if Christ is not in you? then that's the death to be afraid of and that's the one to be wary of. And the warning is, don't let the Lord come for you and you not be ready because you don't know when he's coming. And I don't just mean him coming in the clouds. That's what this story is about and I don't draw back from it at all. You say, do you really believe he's coming in the clouds? I really believe it because he really said it and he has never lied. He never does. I don't know when he's coming, but I'll tell you this. You and I know for a fact that we only have a certain number of days on this earth. That's a fact. And here's another one. You don't know what that number is. I don't either. No one can except the Lord. And the Lord says, be ready. Be ready, which means be looking. Be where you're supposed to be, not off somewhere else. And if you don't have what the Lord has asked you to have in order to be ready, if you don't know the word, if you don't have the spirit, if you don't have faith in him, then go to him and ask for the oil of the anointing of his spirit. Because in the scriptures, that's what the oil stands for. The anointing of the spirit and the connection with the Lord. The fullness of the Holy Spirit is pivotal to the readiness and resourcing of our faith. God is looking for faith. Jesus says, the son of man will return. But when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Or will he find people whose faith has run dry? 
because they weren't prepared to wait and they didn't recognize their lack. And so even those that seemed to have faith ran out of faith. It doesn't have to be if you will come to Jesus and ask him to fill you with faith. The wisdom of the five bridesmaids was the wisdom of faith. The prudent person prepares. The wise virgins prepared, and that's an evidence that they put a high priority on readiness. They realized that there was something more important than whatever these other bridesmaids had been doing when they could have been preparing. These five faithful and wise said, we want to make sure that we are willing and able to wait as long as we need to wait. When we worship the Lord, we're waiting upon him. And we're believing that he's coming back. Earlier in this service, I departed the room. The service video played. The video came to an end. And what happened? I was not there. I was delayed. And what was everybody thinking? What, what comes next? Who's in charge? What do we do? And it got to the place where it got awkward, didn't it? Did you feel that? Raise your hand if you felt a little awkward in that waiting. More of you than that felt awkward in it, I know, but some of you, I appreciate that. How long would I have had to wait before people would go out looking? How long would this pulpit have to be empty before people would start leaving? But who would say, he's coming back? I know he's coming back. I don't know what happened. I don't know what he's doing, but he's coming back. And I did. And Jesus says, you don't know when I'm coming, but don't think that just because you don't see me and you don't know where I'm at, that I'm not coming back. And in that absence, a lot of things can happen. You can start to feel awkward. Where are you, Lord? Why are you not here? It's time. You can start to look around and think, well, I guess he doesn't care if I do this. Or you can think, all right, time to go. But if you left before he came back, and I'm not talking here about me, because you might think, well, I could live without this message. Maybe you can, but I'll tell you what, you can't live without the Lord. And if you leave before you find what he has for you, there's nothing else anywhere else that can fill you up with the faith and the fullness of the fruitfulness of the Lord. The fullness of the Holy Spirit, the oil of the anointing, the reality of the presence of Jesus in our lives and his word operating in our hearts prepares and enlightens us. He lights up the dark. If you're feeling tired today, if you're discouraged, if you're running on empty, if you got a call this week, and maybe it was something as horrible as a death in the family, or maybe it was simply the notice that the bank account's too low, or maybe it was something else, a letter from the IRS, or a sign that popped up on the dashboard of your car, or maybe it was something that somebody at work said to you, or maybe it's something that somebody at home said to you, or maybe it's something that somebody said to you 20 years ago, but it's still ringing in your ears. And if you're in that place or any number of others that reflect a dryness, an emptiness, then recognize your lack and open up to the Lord and express 
your need because he will fill you with himself. And that's what this is. This communion that we partook of today is the fullness of the Lord. This is the feast. This is the oil of anointing. This word is the bread of heaven to nourish you for the patient perseverance that God is calling you and I to. One thing about this story that's very clear is once these bridesmaids left to go get oil and they missed the coming of the Lord, there was no second chance. There was only one bridegroom that they were waiting for and there was only one opportunity to enter the feast. It is appointed, says the scriptures, to each person to live once and then the judgment. In other words, we all get one life. Some people's lives are very short. Some people's lives are very long. Some people's are full of hardness and hardship, and others have lots of blessings. The reality is, if you look close enough at any life of any reasonable length, you're going to find a little of both. But here's another reality. Every life on this earth comes to a conclusion and the scripture says, when it does, we face the Lord. And what we face him with is ourselves. And we either are filled with him and his spirit, or we are not. And it's that basis that determines whether we are ready to receive of his promised feast. The promise of the Lord's reward is real, but this is a time-sensitive offer. Remember those old uh, infomercials? Act now. This is a limited time offer. Don't wait. We hear stuff like that and we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Lord is saying, don't wait to receive me, but don't be unready to wait for me. Wait on me. Believe in me. And I will make you ready when I come for you. So the story of the ten ladies and their lamps is a story in which half were foolish, half were faithful, but there was one feast, and that feast was available to the faithful, but not to the foolish, because the faithful were patient, the faithful were expectant, the faithful were ready, and the faithful were filled with faith, just as you and I are invited to be filled by the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we ask today that you would fill our lamps with the oil of your spirit. If there is any among us, Lord, who have not secured ourselves in you by, by reason of our commitment to you, by reason of our expression of faith in you, then Lord, let this prayer be the invitation and opportunity today. And I just pause in this prayer to say, friend, if that's you and you need to make a recommitment to Jesus, or maybe it's you need to make a commitment to Jesus for the first time, I invite you to do that today. Don't hear this as a sales pitch. Don't hear this as being about church membership. It's certainly about connection with the body of Christ, but it isn't about enlisting people into the roster ranks of our organization. It is about people entering into the feast, into the joy I said earlier that this story is not really a story about marriage, but maybe it is. 
in fact it is. It's not about the marriage of the people in the story. It's about the marriage of Jesus to you and I. And Jesus is inviting you into the feast today. But he's saying, let me first fill your lamp with oil. Let me first make you ready to receive from me. And in that, I will grant you entry into the everlasting, eternal joy of relationship with the Lord, which death cannot alter, but which is greater than death, which even conquers death, which is life everlasting. So, Lord, right now, we each come before you with our hearts with our needs, with our lack, wherever we're empty. And Lord, if we're full, then we pray you'd help us to trim our wicks, to be attentive and submitted to Scripture and ready to receive from you. And Lord, I pray that for anyone who feels that you've already shut the door, for anyone who feels like I don't have enough oil even to get into that place, or there's something so wrong in me that I can't get there, I pray that they'd hear your voice right now behind them saying, just put it into neutral. Just put yourself into my hands and I will push you all the way into the station. I'll push you over the hill and into the harbor, into the safe haven of the heaven of my love and resource. Right now, friend, do that. Put yourself into his hands and let his strength be what takes you all the way into the place of refreshing and renewal and everlasting life. And if that's your prayer today, then just say with me, amen.